0: Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament. Find in there the uh, book of Isaiah as we jump into our new five part sermon series in Isaiah chapter 55. Uh, We are making preparation for the next book that I plan to teach through uh, this year. I'm very excited about that and to share that with you soon. Um, It's going to be a joy. But as we prepare for our transition, uh, a few weeks together here in Isaiah 55, and then Mother's Day, and then uh, a couple Sundays of transition as we get ready for our new series and new time and our new campus, praise God. I've looked forward to preaching this chapter in its entirety, I've had moments to teach parts of it in the past. I've been praying for you all and those who will listen to the podcast from a distance, uh, my prayer is that you would know the gospel of Jesus Christ and the satisfaction that we find in God alone. Each week we will dive into just a few verses. Uh, so, and as we do, you will come to see with me that this chapter is very rich and wonderfully satisfying to point our hearts and lives to God's saving grace. Let's dig in as we look at verses 1 through 3 today. And I want to dig in because there is much to do in just three verses, as you'll see. Isaiah 55, verse 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, And without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food, inclining your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Come everyone who thirst, come to the waters. Isaiah is writing about 700 years before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And much of this sweet book is prophetic in nature of pointing to the Messiah, the one who we spent this last uh, week of Holy Week looking deeply at. Um. Isaiah 53 is very famous, talking about the, the passion of the Christ, the, the, the costly sacrifice of the Messiah, and uh, chapters 54 and 55 begin to turn towards the, the, the blessing, the, the riches, the satisfaction we have in life in Christ. Again, prophetic words spoken 700 years before it would happen is phenomenal, and as we're going to see throughout this series, so richly profound for us still today. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. The chapter opens with a simple but powerful invitation. Come. This highlights a a wonderfully humbling and gracious aspect of our good God. That he is an inviting God. See that God invites everyone who thirsts that God's invitation to his great banquet cuts across ethnic socioeconomic and just every about every other line that sin has drawn but who is it that thirst I would argue that the spiritually dead those dead in sin apart from Christ are not thirsty Spiritually, they are not thirsty. Why? Because spiritually, they are dead. Spiritually, Spiritual new birth is required for true hunger or thirst for God to happen. When the Holy Spirit moves on a person with spiritual regeneration, Jesus calls this new birth. If you've ever heard a newborn baby you are likely hearing from that baby the sound of thirst there's a a general offer of satisfying quenching waters that are offered but only the truly thirsty those whom God has given ears to hear and eyes to see who he's given spiritual new birth to see and savor his gospel will come and drink. Isaiah 55 verse 1 part B, and he who has no money come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. We have nothing with which to pay for this amazing banquet we're invited to. The great hymn, Rock of Ages, has a great lyric of truth that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We have nothing to offer the holy God that is not completely wrecked in our sin. Isaiah 64, 6 says our best and most righteous deeds, our very best effort is like soiled menstrual rags. Our best that we would attempt to bring is wrecked. We have no money. We have nothing to barter with. We have no task we can perform. But still, he invites us. Come. He wants his chosen people to come to him. Come, banquet. Come, feast. Come, bankrupt. Come, smelly. Come, belligerent, but he still invites us to his table. God is good, amen? When your heart feels like the brown and crusty fields of a Bakersfield hot summer, (laughs) it hasn't rained for a long time. Your fleshly hopes have dried up. Your dreams have gone unfulfilled. You have found nothing but dead-end streets again and again. Or maybe you have been very successful. You have made tons of money. You have experienced thrilling relationships. But you still feel empty, unfulfilled, and unsatisfied. Either way. You know deep down inside. That you are thirsty. And you are not truly quenched. I want you to know. That if, if there is something. Truly satisfying. A feast. For your soul. Like nothing else. And God, in his providence and election, invites many to his table to feast. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come, you are invited come buy and eat. I find it interesting that Isaiah just finished saying we have no money and then he says we are to buy. How do we buy what we need if we have no money? And the answer is a big fancy theological word, imputation. Our word of truth catechism which if you don't know about, ask someone who invited you here. We'd love to tell you what it is. A Word of Truth Catechism defines imputation this way. Imputation is when something not of your own is credited or accounted to you. Adam's guilt was imputed to us. Our federal head of mankind, Adam, his guilt, his sin, was imputed, credited to all mankind. The sin of the elect was imputed to Jesus on the cross. It was credited to him. Jesus took on the sin of his people. And Jesus' perfect righteousness was imputed to the elect at conversion. His Righteousness is credited, is laid upon us. Imputation speaks of what we are credited. The the righteousness that we are judged by, if in Christ is Jesus' righteousness, not our own. The veil or clothing that God sees on us is Christ. It's his righteousness. His righteousness is not infused into us. It's not performed by us. It is laid upon us like a garment. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I don't bring any money to enjoy the feast of God because I have no money. It's worse than I don't have any money. What I have is incredible damning debt. So how is it that we are able to feast and be satisfied in God forever without money or when we are full of debt? We are credited with another's account. One who is perfectly rich and righteous. This is how we come to feast without money. This is how we buy and eat and feast. We are given the credit of another's account. Whose account? Jesus Christ. God the Son who took on flesh. Whose name is Yeshua. God saves Jesus. Isaiah says just two chapters before our chapter 55. and chapter 53 that the king of kings, God the Son, is despised and rejected by men. He becomes one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and man esteemed him not. He does this so that we as people can be cloaked in his holy robe of righteousness and thereby enter the feast like the king. Do you see it? Jesus is thrown out willingly (coughs) and we get to come in based on his reputation, his perfection. Do you see the power in that? Do you see the amazing grace of that? This is why we sing, church. This is why when we understand what he has done for us to enter the feast of God we will live our entire lives to tell the world about what he did. This is the, the gospel invitation. Come, buy, eat, be full, be satisfied in Christ. And there's three symbols that the author gives us here and for the satisfaction of the Lord. Water, wine, and milk. Each is often used. Potently used throughout Scripture as a way that God wants to communicate satisfaction and nourishment, celebration. I, I mean, land flowing with milk and honey and, and all the symbolism throughout Scripture uh, for wine and, and, and the life-giving essence of water. I mean, but but let's just take a quick second to look at these individually. And we'll keep moving. When you are most thirsty, and most dehydrated, your body longs for water. It's designed into you this way. Nothing else satisfies or quenches your thirst as much as water. It is God's design for our body, it is therefore a wonderful metaphor the kind of water he alone gives us to satisfy our deepest spiritual thirst. Even King David points to the good shepherd's provision for his sheep in Psalm 23, 2-3. He leads me beside still waters. He restores or refreshes my soul. But Jesus will make it clear that physical water is not enough. Jesus himself says this with great clarity to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Standing by a water well, in the middle of an arid, dry, scorching midday heat, she comes to draw water and he says, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. beautiful wonderful metaphor essentially jesus saying whatever you put your bucket the bucket of your soul whatever you put it into in anything but me your job money status stuff relationship marriage parenting sports school food drugs you will become more and more thirsty and these things cannot quench your deepest thirst and Jesus continues with this most epic statement in verse 14, John 4, 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The water Jesus speaks of as a metaphor for his life welling up unto eternal life. It's about the quality of life, true life, a quenching of our soul thirst. He's talking about his life that will be laid down so that we can join him in his victory in eternal life. The living water that Jesus is, is the only source of true and lasting satisfaction for our soul. Now watch this. Jesus is saying, I have something. A water your soul needs more than your body needs water. Which if you know anything about the way the body works, we can live a long time on just water. He's saying, this is eternal life to you. The water I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The satisfaction, a quenching of the soul forever. Forever a never-ending satisfaction. God invites us to come to the waters to be satisfied in Christ like nothing else can. Another metaphor that we're given in our passage is milk. I love how John Piper speaks of it this way. He says, Milk corresponds to the need for ongoing nourishment. When someone is grasping for life, you give them water. But when you want a little baby to grow day after day, you give them milk again and again. Trust me, in our household, we know this well. <laughs> <coughs> it, it, this is totally a tangent. This is super cool. Love my wife and her diligence to feed these infants, almost fifth, forty babies and young ones through our home in the last three years. That's a lot of bottles. <laughs> a lot of bottles and. You know, you get up in the middle of the night, you got to go warm the bottle and get it right. And you're half asleep, you're trying to take care of this child's needs and then get back to bed. She found this glorious in- invention. It's this machine that has the, the formula on the top, and it, it's like a Keurig for babies. <laughs> and you put the bottle in, and you push the button, depending on the ounces, and it puts out the warm water in, in the thing, and, and the bottle is ready like that. My wife is very happy about this. <laughs> it is great invention. Where was that in the middle of this quote? <laughs> All right. You want a little baby to grow day after day, and night after night, and hour after hour, You give them milk again and again. God is not just for emergencies and mountain peaks. I love that. He invites you not only to come alive with water, but also to be stable and strong with milk. I'm going to come back to the metaphor of milk a little later in the sermon. But I will tell you that it is a critical provision of God for our growth. Let's look at wine. Come by wine. As in all things in God's creation, wine itself is a symbol. it's a picture, it's a reflection of something bigger and greater. It's a picture of the blessings that come from a right relationship with God. Genesis 27:28, May God give you the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth and the plenty of grain and wine. It's a picture of blessing. Wine corresponds to exhilaration or celebration. Psalm 104, verse 15 says, God gave wine to gladden the heart. It's man who in sin has taken wine to make something else of it. God's intention for it is holy and good. We need to live and not die, so we need water. We need to be strong and stable instead of weak, so we drink milk. But that's not all we need in this life no matter how stoic or unemotional or laid back or poker faced you might be. There is a child inside of every one of us that God has made for exhilaration, for singing, for dancing, for playing and skipping and running and jumping and laughing and celebrating. Wine is a God-given symbol for celebration. In life, and religion, we can quickly embrace the mundane practices and needs of life and set aside the provision that God's given us of joy in an invitation for us to feast, to celebrate, to know laughter and joy. That true joy church is found in God alone a good meal, a great glass of wine, a memorable experience with family or friends are all good. But ultimately, they point us to the one who truly satisfies, who truly is the joy to our soul, Jesus. See this morning that God wants us to be full. He wants us to be healthy in him for our soul to be satisfied in him to grow and to celebrate, not as a result of temporary eating and drinking, but as a result of our feasting in him, of dining with him, of knowing and loving and being satisfied in him. So what Isaiah 55.1 says is that God will revive us from the heat of Death Valley with living water. And make us strong and healthy and stable with the provision of milk. And then give us endless and ever fresh exhilaration and celebration with wine. Let's consider this phrase come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. The fact is that it is without price. This is a truly humbling reality when we come to understand it rightly. We gain access to the glorious pleasure of knowing God at no cost to us. And understand critically, it is of no price to us. But understand that God's justice will be met. For God is just. Therefore, someone has to pay. Someone has to pay. This is what Jesus did on our behalf. Isaiah 53, two chapters before, verse 5. By his stripes, we are healed. What a boggling thing. He is wounded, so we are healed. Grace is free to us, and it is costly to Jesus on our behalf. Some of you might be thinking about something Jesus says often and that I love to highlight often as it's a prominent teaching of Jesus. And that is that the Christian life is a life of sacrifice. It is costly. That true saving faith in God is not just belief about, but it is belief into. We we confess our sin, we die to our own lordship, and we submit our lives, we give our lives to Jesus. Paul says it so well in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Please rightly understand, when we die to self to live to Christ, it's not a payment of any kind for our salvation. Yet the cost of self and the horizontal control of our lives and treasures of our lives is given up to follow Christ. We do not pay to play, but the result of our transformed heart and mind for Jesus is that we joyfully die to ourselves and willingly take up our crosses every day so that we can serve him and make much of him. One of the clearest realities you should have as a saved saint in Christ, a converted Christian, is what a joy it is to not belong to yourself anymore, but to get to serve him All the days of your lives. This is why the apostles in the New Testament used one word almost more than anything else to describe themselves and the joy it was to be in Christ. The word was slave. It was their joy to be a servant or better translated, a slave of Christ. That was their highest joy. We do not belong to ourselves, we serve Him with our lives, with our money, with our family, our time, our jobs, our hobbies. And this this is also one of the biggest reasons why non believers or so called believers will mock, hate, and slander true believers. because this sacrificial life, this dying to self to live to Christ thing is offensive to their worldly agenda. To be clear, there is no cost to us to enjoy God, but the result of our knowing him is a sacrifice like nothing else you will ever make. But it is for our utter joy. Look with me at verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? Let me ask you this morning, as we enter into this part of the sermon in the passage, to really make it personal for you, so do some inventory for me. What have you been spending your time on? your efforts, your hard work, your priorities on as of late? What have you been pursuing in order to be satisfied? What is that one thing that if you're honest with yourself, you've been thinking about if you had it, you'd be satisfied. A different job. A different city. A different car. A different house. A different spouse. A new computer. A new boat. New books, a new bike, a new grill, new season tickets, a new diet, new looks, new friends. One of my favorite quotes goes like this. It would seem... That our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The late Pascal brings light to this. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. The point is, all the daily things that we've been trying to gain satisfaction in can be great things given to us by God to be enjoyed. But if that is all we've dreamed of or learned to enjoy, then we have settled, now get this, for a distant second. Romans one twenty five speaks hum, uh, soberingly about this because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Church, because we are wired by God for worship, we will worship. When we turn from God, we will find a substitute on whom to heap our praise, on whom to put on the altar of our hearts our deepest longings and hopes and dreams. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. It is these substitutes that have become our idols, our modern day idols. When you think of idolatry or idol worship, don't think of a carved rock or wood our catechism or word of truth catechism. There it is again. If you don't know what that is, ask someone who brought you or knows you. Defines idolatry this way. Idolatry is worshiping or finding hope, identity, significance, purpose, or security in anything other than God our Creator. The point is, the created things of God cannot and do not satisfy like only God can. Isaiah 55, verse 2, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? This is essentially saying, you're not satisfied because you're spending your life, you're building your life, for on temporary things that will not last or satisfy. So then we begs to ask the question, what is the bread we should be pursuing? John 6.35, Jesus from his own mouth said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you're thinking of, so it's like an everlasting gobstopper and I just never need more food, it's not that. That's you still only thinking of the horizontal. It's back to that soul hunger, that soul thirst, that deepest part of your life that is not satisfied in anything but him. Bread equals satisfaction. It's another metaphor, substance for life. Jesus is saying, I am that substance, that satisfaction. This is too big to just hear and say, okay, and move on. This is where many of us, even believers, just still don't get this. So we got to make sure we do. Jesus is saying that true life, lasting life, satisfying life is only found in him. And I just want to lovingly ask you if that is true, then why are you concerning yourself with anything else? How does anything else get close to Him in our day, in our priority, in our lives, in our longings? We allow these counterfeits, these secondary things to climb so high on our ladder when He is more than enough. Jesus is life. He doesn't just make life better. If that's your view of him, then you are still an idolater because your view then is to use Jesus to get to something else when he is the prize. He's everything. He is bread that satisfies. The prize of all prizes is God himself. We must replace our counterfeit idols and affections with the satisfaction that only God is. So listen now to the next part of verse 2 and verse 3. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. The call to listen diligently is the call on us today. You must listen diligently. You must incline your ear and come to Jesus so that your soul may live. The call to listen or be mindful to our hearing is emphasized all throughout Scripture and especially in the book of Hebrews to give you a taste of what we see in Hebrews. In chapter two, verse one, the author says, pay close attention to the message you've heard, lest you drift. In verse, in chapter three, verse one, simply says, consider Jesus. In chapter three, verse eight, don't harden your hearts like Israel did in the wilderness. Chapter three, verse 12, take care lest you have an evil heart of unbelief. And then he takes a breath. You can almost hear the author sigh. And in verse in chapter 5, verse 11, about this, speaking of Jesus and who he is, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. He gives a specific diagnosis to the audience's ailments. And it's a danger we all face. It's called the dullness of hearing. This is what's behind all these biblical exhortations. Play close attention, consider, don't harden your heart, be diligent, hold fast. These are the great doctor's prescriptions for the disease of the dullness of hearing. Dullness of hearing doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your physical ears. It means there's something wrong with your heart. The heart is not diligent to embrace the promises of And turn them into faith and patience. The word comes into the ears and goes down to the heart and it hits something hard and tough and distracted and busy. That's dullness of hearing. The promises come into the ear, but there's no passion for them, there's no lover's embrace, there's no cherishing or treasuring. No faith or perseverance. The opposite of the dullness of hearing is hearing with faith that produces obedience, action, sanctification. The dullness of hearing is hearing without faith applied to it. It's like hearing the Bible or the preaching of the Bible, the way you hear the freeway noise of 99. The way you hear the music in the dentist office waiting room. It's there, but you're not really hearing it. You hear it, but then again, you don't. You've grown, you've grown dull to its sound. It doesn't awaken or produce anything in you anymore. We must address anything that causes us to not do what our scripture today says. Listen diligently, incline our ears and come to Jesus. Hear that our souls may live. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. here that your soul may live. If you hear this sermon today and you think the application is you get to go spend all of your money on the best cuts of meat. You've missed it. Well, that's a good gift of God. The rich food also translated fatness. Not, that's not slang language. It's like good King James language. Psalm 36, 8. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. And thou shalt make them drink Of the river of thy pleasures. The feast is God. And he is plentiful. The Bible loves to talk about the riches of God's glory. The fullness of joy at his right hand. That he gives the best. And it never runs out. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 4. I want to punch prosperity preachers in the face when they twist that scripture. When they say, delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Like that means a Ferrari or a nice body or whatever else we conjure up. No, that's a lie. Delight yourself in the Lord, who is the greatest desire of your heart. He will give you Himself. Huh. Replace Him with anything else in creation is idolatry. Sorry. <laughs> we must not reduce God to a key that unlocks a treasure chest of gold and silver. Instead, Job 22, 25 in the New Living Translation, I love how it says, the Almighty himself will be your treasure. He will be your precious silver. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. I shall not lack any good thing. Because I'm satisfied in him. And notice the call to eat. To eat what is good, when someone says, "Come eat," they're saying, "Come be nourished." You know, in a pff, idolatrous, have- it all modern society we live in, we eat for taste. Do you realize that's not why you eat? You eat for nourishment. If you eat for taste and not nourishment, no wonder you're not healthy. We eat for nourishment. Is what we're eating nourishing to us? We need not lose sight of this. Isaiah fifty-five two. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Right here is application for life and maturity in Christ. We eat the nourishment He provides. And I'll give you a hint, the best provision that that is, is, has nothing to do with real food. Peter speaks to it so well, and this is where I want to come back to this metaphor of milk. 1 Peter 2, 2-3. through three. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Is Peter talking that there's like this special brand of actual milk that we've got to go find, that's pure and spiritual? No. So see, it is a metaphor, just like the, in, eat the rich food. It's a metaphor. It's pointing to something else. So first, just quickly, what is pure spiritual milk? It's pure, meaning it's undefiled as opposed to those things that are sinful or or defiled. It's spiritual. That's the Greek word logics. It's logical. It's reasonably pertaining to the soul. This is Peter's way of referencing the logos, meaning word. It's milk. It's, It's nourishment. It's food. It helps you grow. This is a reference to spiritual growth in Christ Growth that's not a mystical thing, but a rational, informed thing that happens by what? By the word of God. If we want to be with and near and about our eternal father, we want to hear his voice. We want him to shape us and grow us and mature us, provide for us, lead us. We must long for the pure spiritual milk of his living word. Just listen to how the psalmist describes the word of God and how it fuels our lives. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law is of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover by them is thy servant warned in keeping them, there is great reward." See that the nourishment, the growth in Christ that we long to know and to have and to mature in, it's not actually food or drink. Those are metaphors pointing us to something greater, pointing us back to the provision of the word of God and what it is to us. How important is the pure spiritual milk of God? Well, if you have a choice between the word of God and gold, choose the word of God. If you have a choice between the word of God and much gold, choose the word of God. If you have a choice between the word of God and much fine gold, choose the word of God. The benefits of knowing and doing the word of God are greater than anything money can buy is the point it's making. Anything that is sweeter than honey that drips from the honeycomb And Jesus proves this, being hungry, physically hungry, after not eating for 40 days and 40 nights. He speaks in the desert, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you ever want to say, well, that's easy to say, you know, he's Jesus. No, he's like hungry. He's really, truly hungry. Why is he fasting for 40 days? Why would someone give up eating and drinking for 40 days to feast on the Word of God? Food can only give physical life, the Word of God gives spiritual life, life that never ends, life that which is indeed life. And I feel like this is why so many Christians feel like their faith or their spirituality is so bland. Maybe this is you today. You feel disconnected from God. You, you feel like your faith is only really a small ember in the ashes of the fire that once burned bright. And it's smoldering and it's somewhat grown cold. And I believe that this is because your Christian body is so malnourished. Malnourished. You have no spiritual fuel in you. You cry out to God, God, why do I feel so weak? You see, it's because you're not longing for the pure spiritual milk. The living word I've given you to study and to know, to know me, to treasure me, to well up with worship, priority for me. Job said it well, Job twenty-three, twelve. I have treasured the words of his mouth More than my necessary food. And yet, we'll justify setting aside the word of God to work a little overtime so that not only are our fridges full of food, but they're full of more food. How opposite is that? You want to know how you truly are satisfied in God above all else, it is you're tested beyond belief, like Job was. His children killed. His business, his career of a lifetime, gone. His body stricken with the worst of disease. And he still worships God. still gets it. God is calling us this morning by way of command to desire the pure milk of the word, to long for it, to feast on it. Psalm 118, 174, your law is my delight. 1 Peter 2, 2-3, through three, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. So I just ask you again, what have you been longing for lately? You just got to have it, food, coffee, sleep, vacation, pay raise. What if someone from a foreign culture, and I mean foreign, I mean they just don't get Americans, they don't get any of it. What if that person shadowed you for one week, and all we asked them to report back to us was one question. What does this person long for? What would they say? Peter says, with all your longings in this life, this is the one you need to have an intense, passionate, overwhelming, insatiable craving for the word of God to well up and, and fan the flame of that ember, of that cold ash fire to make it blaze again. Why? With a passion for God with the satisfaction in Him to remind your, your head and your hands and your heart and your priorities and your, and your habits and your hobbies who is the real prize, where the real feast resides. Psalm 55, verse 3, incline your ear and come to me hear that your soul may live. Verse 1 says, come to the waters. Come for wine and milk. Verse 3 says, come to me. All All this is about coming to Jesus. We've made that clear from the beginning. God is our ultimate living water. God is our ultimate nourishing milk. God is our ultimate exhilarating wine. What this helps us with is to understand the things of life, the everyday things we've come to enjoy, these things he has created, he has entrusted them to us to be enjoyed so that we will see that he is central to it all. That we will give him praise that means many more moments in our lives we will open up our mouths and sing praise for him for the everyday stuff in the end it is him that is our ultimate joy and prize so when we say God is good it's not just because he gave something to us or did something it's because those things he did or gave us ultimately point us back to him I pray that today this is good news to your soul. That our passage today says, hear so that your soul may live. Just close your eyes for me real quick. I just want to just make a couple of statements as we prepare to respond in worship. And then I'll pray and then the band will come up. I've been praying that for those of you who still have not yet come to Jesus He will. I've been praying for all of us that you're not dull of hearing, but that you would incline your ear. That you would long for the pure spiritual milk of Christ's word. And that by His amazing grace you hear, and I mean truly unto conviction and life transformation you hear. So that your soul will live I don't mean just get by. I mean thrive. I mean feast. No matter where you're at, receive his invitation today. Set aside the counterfeits that do not satisfy. Stop thinking you have arrived and therefore don't need to listen or grow. Come to God and his suffering servant. Taste the joy of thirst thirst quenched, hunger, satisfied of your deepest longings met. Come to the great banquet table of the everlasting feast that is life with God. And as we prepare to sing, hear the words of Isaiah chapter 25, 6 through 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces for the reproach of his people he will take away From all the earth, and the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Father, we pray that you would break through today, that you would break in. That you would not leave us where we have been, but you would love us enough to shake us, to upset us, to unseat us from the counterfeits, from the second, the distant second things that we have tried to be satisfied in, that we've pursued for far too long. That you would teach us what it is through your word to be a good and right steward of these things that all of it is constantly under the, the umbrella of, of who you are to us, constantly at the foot of the cross, constantly ready to be given up, that we would forsake you not for anything that you have created. We are desperate for you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you move. We need you, God, to work. The blind will not see by just opening their eyes. you must give us new birth that spiritual thirst for all that you are that only in the gospel are we satisfied only in God are we satisfied that we would truly and wholeheartedly cry out to the son of David Jesus Christ and that we truly know satisfaction because God is has saved us. Hear us now as we sing, as we ready for the week ahead. In Jesus' name.